Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, this is Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the IASLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. The topic of today's episode is biomarker testing and the barriers that prevent optimal testing. To help me dive into this topic, I'm joined by three guests with relevant expertise. First, Dr. Deb Bruno, Associate Professor at Case Western Reserve University, Lead of Thoracic Medical Oncology at Seidman Cancer Center, and the Medical Director of the William T. Doms Clinical Research Unit at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center. Deb, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm also joined by Dr. Rami Manashakian, Associate Professor and the Hematology Oncology Vice Chair for Education at Mayo Clinic, Florida, and Co-Director of the ISLC Academy. Rami, glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. And our third guest, Dr. Matthew Smeltzer, an Associate Professor of Epidemiology and Biostatistics and University Research Professor at the University of Memphis. Matt, thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, Deb, let's start with some of the terminology. When we talk about biomarkers for lung cancer, what do we mean by the word biomarkers? Broadly speaking, biomarkers are specific changes in genes and protein expression of tumors that predict a tumor's response to specific treatments. In lung cancer, specifically non-small cell lung cancer, which accounts for approximately 85% of all cases of lung cancer in the U.S., there have been many oncogenic drivers identified to date for which target therapies are available. Those oncogenic drivers are specific gene mutations, deletions, insertions, rearrangements that serve as biomarkers to predict response to those target therapies if they're identified in a tumor. And target therapies are not only associated with very high response rates, but also a, a reasonable toxicity profile superior to that of, of chemotherapy agents. We currently have 10 major subgroups of molecular uh, biomarkers in advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer with FDA-approved target therapies. And since typically there isn't a coexistence of these oncogenic drivers, this means that there are 10 subpopulations of advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer that can be treated differently. And on top of genomic biomarkers, we also have PDL1, which is a protein biomarker expressed by the non-small cell lung cancer cells, and that is associated with efficacy to checkpoint inhibitor therapy. So mostly in the absence of oncogenic drivers, PGL1 expression is really key to determine optimal therapy for those patients. So non-small cell lung cancer has really become the flagship in oncology for the importance of testing for biomarkers, because in the advanced metastatic setting, we now have so many different types of treatments that have been designed to target those. I think the terminology is so important. We will use terms like mutations, fusions, sequencing. We're all talking really about the same thing, these biomarkers. And Rami, I, I've heard you speak before and stress how important it is to do full biomarker testing before starting treatment for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. As you know, I couldn't agree more. Can you explain to our listeners maybe why early testing is so critical to proper care? Absolutely. Building off what Dr. Bruno is saying, I mean, again, identifying uh, the presence of a biomarker is a major key 
to identify you know certain treatments for patients whose cancer harbor these mutations. As she mentioned, as we speak right now, as the time of recordings, we have about 10 actionable mutations or alterations that are believed to be the driver of the cancer growth when uh, they exist. And for these mutations, we have a specific targeted therapy with several studies on these different medications that are approved, whether in the United States or worldwide, that, are, uh, that have made a difference uh, making patient living longer, uh, shrinking tumors, great response rate, CNS response, and many, many other efficacy uh, measures. But if we don't know that this patient's cancer harbors the mutation, then we may be depriving a patient from a life-changing drug. And definitely, we want to test as early as possible for these mutations for a lot of different reasons. First of all, checking for these mutations, as Dr. Bruno mentioned, were, you know, help us understand the biology and what's, if there is any genomic alteration that is driving the cancer. And we want to know that as early as possible so we can give the patient the right medication. Second of all, we do have a lot of data showing that are actually in the presence of such mutations, some other drugs may be suboptimal, don't work well, and also could cause toxicity, such as giving immunotherapy or a checkpoint inhibitor to a patient with EGFR mutation or some other mutation. It will lead to some toxicity later on or increase toxicity when we give them, for instance, EGFR inhibitor. It's just a standard of care now from the moment we diagnose a patient with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, specifically non-squamous cell carcinoma, we need to test for this mutation as early as possible because they will direct the best and optimal treatment for this patient. Well put, Rami. And you know, again, I think that uh, this is a little bit of a paradigm shift for the management of cancer in general and lung cancer specifically. There really is a right and a wrong treatment and a right and a wrong sequence. And when we look at targeted therapy, as Deb mentioned, they're very well tolerated drugs. They work very well, very safe. But when we give them after immunotherapy, even after one dose of immunotherapy, for unclear reasons, they can become very toxic sometimes very dangerous. And so we want to be sure we're not burning any bridges. We want to be sure we give the right treatment first. We're looking for the right treatment, not the fastest treatment. And to choose the right treatment, we have to have those biomarker results. You know, we certainly don't have time to go into all the details, but to help with discussion, Deb, can you talk about the different ways in which we can do biomarker testing? You know, specifically, what do we mean by multiplex testing? Absolutely, Stephen. So previously, when we really only had chemotherapy as treatment option for patients with metastatic disease, and just a couple of biomarkers with FDA-approved targeted therapies, EGFR and ALK, it was common and acceptable practice to perform single-gene sequencing of the EGFR gene and either immunohistochemistry or FISH for the rearrangement of the ALK gene. Later on, with the approval of other targeted therapies for new oncogenic drivers, doing single testing for those biomarkers turned out to be problematic because it demanded more tissue and it was certainly more time consuming. And that was when multiplex testing became the new paradigm in, in non-small cell lung cancer. The very definition of multiplex testing refers to the ability to test simultaneously 
a single specimen for many data points that are necessary to make therapeutic decisions. And in the case of genomic testing for non-small cell lung cancer, next-generation sequencing, or NGS, has really taken off as the multiplex test of choice because it performs this simultaneous sequencing of many genes of interest in parallel, all at once, using a single biopsy or cytologist specimen. There are, however, some differences between NGS platforms. Perhaps the ones we are mostly familiar with are the commercial ones that sequence more than 300 genes. So beyond the biomarkers for which we have FDA-approved treatments, other alterations and oncogenic drivers for which we don't have FDA-approved therapies yet can be identified, and this may give the opportunity to patients to participate in clinical trials with newer agents. Many clinical practices, however, utilize the so-called hotspot NGS testing panels that focus on the alterations for which FDA-approved drugs exist. So these are typically associated with faster turnaround times. So it is a fair statement that sequential sequencing and testing of single genes for advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer has really been abandoned at most centers because NGS allows for more efficient utilization of the biopsy, cytologist specimen, and also uh, shorter turnaround times. So more efficient in terms of timing, more efficient in terms of you know, use of tissue and, and preventing exhaustion of that tissue. Rami, anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I 100% agree. I would add also more cost-effective. We have actually some good number of studies that showed, you know, we all lived in the era where we were doing one test at a time when for quite some time we had, for instance, EGFR, ALK, and ROS1. You know, we were doing PCR for EGFR, a FISH for ALK, and then ROS1. By the time you are you know, reaching the third test or the fourth test, if you're doing them individually, not only your exhausting tissue, but also the cost is actually become more to do three or four individuals test as opposed to one uh, 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 multiplex um, testing. As Dr. Bruno mentioned, it, it, it should be really, you know, to me, it's a substandard of care right now if we're still doing individual testing. And as much as I would love to say it is abandoned in most institutions, we're still hearing and we're seeing some patients here and there who do get some individual testing. Technically, they did get incomplete NGS testing because it doesn't help me or help the patient to only know that they don't have EGFR um, mutation or ALK arrangement or ROS1. Any actionable mutation, we need to know, does it exist or not? And multiplex testing is the best way and most cost-effective to do it. So biomarker testing, it's not just a yes, no, check the box. Really, the details here matter, and they have mattered for, for quite a while. Matt, what do our professional guidelines tell us about molecular testing in lung cancer? Well, probably the most comprehensive set of guidelines are published by the College of American Pathologists, ISLC, and the Association of Molecular Pathology altogether. So we call these the CAP, ISLC, AMP guidelines, and they are also endorsed by ASCO. The, so they are published in 2013, updated in 2018. And uh, really, the bottom line is uh, everyone with a stage two or greater lung adenocarcinoma should be receiving some type of biomarker testing. If you uh, look at the NCCN guidelines, that's the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, 
Uh, they spec they keep pretty updated list of which actionable mutations should be included in that testing. And as we know, that that changes and also uh, depends a little bit on stage. So metastatic disease, uh, we've had actionable mutations for for quite a while. And right now, NCCN is recommending uh, at least at a minimum nine driver mutations plus PDL one are tested for in every lung adenocarcinoma of metastatic disease. And when we look in early stage, we uh, currently NCCN is recommending uh, at least EGFR, ALK, and PDL1 in, in stage two or higher uh, early stage lung cancers with an adenocarcinoma component. So, again, really everyone with lung adeno except the smallest size tumors uh, should be receiving testing. And then the, the CAP ISLC AMP guidelines go on to provide a lot more detail about best practices for how you might want to approach uh, the ins and outs of the testing. All right. So right away, we've established that biomarker testing, critical to proper care for lung cancer, the testing needs to be done early, needs to be done properly. And in the U.S., we're fortunate to really have access to such testing. Biomarker testing is in our guidelines. And so one would believe that everyone with advanced non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer should have biomarker testing, but we know that not everyone does. And so, Rami, I'm thinking back now to the, the first phase of the My Lung Consortium study, which was really an early reflection as to how much room for improvement there is. Let me ask you, how close are we to doing biomarker testing on everyone that needs it? Yeah, thanks, Stephen, for this question. I think it is the crucial questions when it comes to biomarker testing. Um, you you referenced a very important study that was uh, you know presented a couple of years ago at ASCO. You know, at that point, we didn't have yet probably all these actionable mutation. We live in an era of uh, hope, as I call it. The the field of lung cancer management is evolving every year, every few months. We're getting some new potential actionable mutations and drugs being identified. And in that study, it was looking at, you know, generally speaking, in in real world uh, uh, database, you know, patient with advanced lung cancer, um, you know, what's the percentage that, you know, of patient that they got a full testing? And at that point, they were looking at mainly EGFR, ALCROSS1, BRAF, and I believe PDL1. And the bottom line in that study was that the number that, you know, stocks is that, you know, less than 50% had a, had a full testing. Um, again, what we covered earlier today, we talked about individual testing versus multiplex. That study was a little while ago, and I'm hoping that we are heading in the right directions. We've had a study last year presented in ESMO, real world also database from Spain, showing better numbers and that the you know more patients are being tested. But in my humble opinion, we're still far, based on what we're, we're, we're seeing, based on survey, um, we're still far uh, from the standard of care, which is testing uh, everyone. But I think there is a lot of efforts are happening to head us into the right direction. But simply, if you want me to say how close, I think we're closer, but we're not close enough, unfortunately. I mean, we've known about EGFR as an important biomarker for quite a while now. And, and to look at our, our best rates in the 75, 80%, while that's better than it was before, it means that, you know, as many as one out of four people are not getting EGFR testing. Mm -hmm. I really think it's, it's pretty inexcusable. If we don't have this information, we cannot pick the right therapy. So we're clearly not testing enough people, not anywhere near enough people. 
we need to think of why we're not testing everyone. I think it's important to look a little more closely at exactly who is not getting tested. Now, Deb, you presented some eye-opening data at ASCO published in JCO on some of the details regarding disparities in testing. Can you explain to us what you found? Uh, sure, sure, Stephen. So when looking at the underrepresentation of certain racial minorities in lung cancer targeted therapy trials, we wondered if there were racial disparities in biomarker testing in the U.S., right? So are we testing everyone? Are we identifying biomarkers that could give patients a chance to enroll in those studies? So we utilized the flat tire database to perform a retrospective analysis of all cases of advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer diagnosed in the U.S. from 2017 through 2020. So it's a contemporaneous uh, cohort covering a period when broad multiplex NGS testing was already recommended by professional guidelines as the preferred testing method prior to initiation of first-line therapy in, in those patients. And looking at more than 10,000 individuals with uh, non-squamous histology, what we discovered was that the NGS testing rates were extremely low among all patients in the cohort. But compared to 36% of the patients of white race being tested prior to first-line therapy, only 29% of the patients of black race were tested. And um, at any given time after the diagnosis of advanced metastatic disease, while 55% of the white patients with non-squamous histology ended up receiving NGS testing, only 44% of the patients of black race did. And as expected, undergoing biomarker testing and NGS-based testing correlated with receiving target therapy in the first line setting and ever. We also saw a correlation between biomarker testing and clinical trial enrollment patients undergoing any biomarker testing and NGS testing uh, before initiation of first-line therapy, and at any given time, were twice as likely to participate in a clinical trial. So it is certainly possible that racial disparities in biomarker testing may contribute to disparities in clinical trial participation for this disease. Another key example of how these social determinants of health significantly impact delivery of, of proper care. Such important data, Deb. You know, and, and so for many of us, biomarker testing really is part of that initial diagnosis. And without it, it is an incomplete diagnosis, but clearly awareness about the importance of biomarker testing needs to improve. Now, a few years ago, ISLC conducted an important survey on biomarker testing in 2019 that was presented at WCLC, that was published in JTO. Matt, you helped lead that effort. Can you tell us a little bit about that survey? Sure, Stephen. Uh 2019, we circulated the survey. The idea was, um, can we better understand the global landscape around molecular testing in lung cancer and really understand uh, what's going on, what do the numbers look like, and how does it vary by region, what type of barriers are, are preventing optimal testing? Since this was uh, 2019, it focused on metastatic disease, and uh, we ended up having over 2,500 responses to that survey from 102 countries. 56% uh, of the responses were from developing countries and 44% from developed countries. So we felt like we got pretty good representation across the globe. And the sort of the overarching theme was that most of the respondents were not satisfied with the state of molecular testing in their country. They reported that, that they feel like in their clinic, they test more than half of 
lung cancer patients, but that it was less than half in the rest of the country. And it it obvious it also became obvious that more technical knowledge uh, would be helpful, and the availability of laboratories can be an issue in some places. And generally, we found suboptimal awareness and applications of evidence-based guidelines. We also went on to uh, uncover several important barriers that that people were facing to molecular testing in lung cancer, and those were um, pretty uniform across the regions of the world, which we were a little surprised about. Um, but we we concluded that we need uh, better education around molecular testing. We need to intensify our efforts both uh, on local levels and international levels to really make sure that optimal uh, therapy is provided to these patients. So we all know how important this is. Rami, do these results surprise you at all? I would say the results were not surprising per se, uh, knowing that we are not even close, especially back then in 2019, to be testing you know, every um, patient who's eligible for testing. But, but definitely what I like about this you know, very well-designed you know, survey, um, and, and kudos to the, to, the, to the team, is it helped us understand what are the barriers or you know what is happening in real life i like that it was worldwide study you know touching on the on the disparity touching that you know on the fact that every part of the world ha- may have their own uh, barriers uh, uh, different reasons um and it validates that clearly as steven mentioned uh, we need to do uh, a much a better job addressing one barrier at a time because you could look at it if in 2019 when probably half of the current uh, mutations known mutation that have you know uh, uh, um, uh, targeted therapy uh, were not even there yet at that point become standard of care and and we when we had only few mutations and we weren't testing you would hope that by now with more uh, available mutations you know we're validating the importance of doing such testing but if you don't address those barriers the barriers going to be there no matter what and and we just need to do a better job simply put deb why why is the awareness of biomarker testing so poor in the us i think the therapeutic advances in non small cell lung cancer are happening at a an extremely fast pace, and that creates many challenges for oncologists and pathologists to keep up with the volume of new information available. When we think of next-generation sequencing, for instance, this is a very new technology that was not commercially available 15 years ago. And for oncologists and pathologists that were not trained during this new era, it may take a bit longer to catch up. I also think that the care of patients with non-small cell lung cancer is multidisciplinary in nature, and it requires a concerted institutional effort to adhere to national guidelines and reevaluate periodically the flow of testing and treatment in place at each institution to keep up with the with the advances. I think that's a, a really key point, Deb. And, and you know, while we're comfortable with all these different testing modalities. You know, if you finished your training 25 years ago, none of this existed. Uh, and so it can be really difficult to keep up. Let's look at the, the ISLAC survey. In the ISLC survey, the five most commonly cited barriers 
to proper biomarker testing were cost, quality, access, awareness and standards, and turnaround time. So let's talk about a little of these in more detail. Let's start with cost. Rami, these tests are expensive, but you mentioned it might be more cost-effective to run all of them. Can you talk about how we can address cost as a barrier to proper testing? Absolutely. Cost is a major barrier. And um, as it was mentioned in the survey, the resulted, you talk to a lot of uh, people, a lot of providers, colleagues, and they will tell you how this has always been a barrier. Uh, there is there is light at the end of the tunnel. It's, um, you know, first of all, as we mentioned, multiplex testing is more cost effective. Second of all, we are seeing what I would like to call a revolution in the industry of uh, these uh, uh, testing, NGS testing. When we started, maybe a couple of companies, they were doing these. And now multiple and several companies using a newer, more advanced platform, more cost-effective platforms. Many um, institutions, hospitals, uh, centers have developed their own testing. Um, so we could definitely see the cost getting better as far as the actual cost of the test. Second of all, I think with this becoming a standard of care to test every patient, um, we've had in the past... Uh, uh, incidents where insurance companies were may not approving. I have rarely encountered now um, insurance companies not approving those tests. Of course, there's still significant cost or co-payment or um, as far as here in the U.S., there could be some burdens on the patients, on the providers. And of course, um, this would would be in a in a in a different uh, volume and numbers in other parts of the world. But I think we're heading in the right direction. I would say. You know, there are a lot of uh, uh, programs out there. Kudos to many companies and, of course, many societies, American Cancer Society, um, um, ISLAC, uh, ASCO, uh, developing a program, uh, uh, raising awareness for some support programs where we have right now many options to make sure that the test is done and the cost is not a major barrier. And, um, you know, my advice is, if you know about this test and you want to send this test on any patient of yours, but it's a cost issue, um, talk to social worker, talk to uh, leads in many societies, talk to some of these companies who have a lot of programs, patient support programs, where they could do a lot um, to help with the cost. Yeah, well put. And you know, don't assume that it's too expensive. What we see sometimes is we assume the test is too expensive for this patient doesn't get ordered when really uh, an ordering physician may not be aware of, of what the out-of-pocket cost is for such a test. And when we look at the state of lung cancer today, Rami, if we're not giving targeted therapy, we're giving immunotherapy. And I would imagine the cost of immunotherapy is quite a bit more than the cost of, of NGS testing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Not to mention just the cost of getting the wrong treatment and, and the, the time cost um, associated with that. Deb, on the issue of time, what do we do to address turnaround time? Well, there are many changes in institutional testing practices that can uh, take place to address the issue of uh, turnaround time. One of them is to implement reflex testing, right? So we know that there are cancers for which uh, reflex testing of certain biomarkers is standard of practice. So HER2 testing breast cancer, for instance, it's part of the pathology workflow. So by the time a specimen is signed out as breast cancer, HER2 is immediately reflex tested. 
So we have implemented a precision medicine uh, in our thoracic oncology program at our institution that introduced many changes, including reflex testing, all patients with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And just to explain the context and, and how close to most settings in the U.S. this may be, ours is a, a hybrid academic community practice that is the result of vertical consolidation. So many private practices uh, including not only medical oncology, but also pathology, were acquired by this large academic institution. And as you know, one of the challenges with vertical consolidation is to keep a uniform standard practice throughout the system. So besides reflex testing, we also introduced an in-house focused NGS panel that targets approximately 60 genes. And by reflex testing using this in-house focused NGS testing platform, we reduce turnaround time for NGS counting from biopsy date by six calendar days. So it went down from 18 days from the biopsy to 12, 12 calendar days. And um, at the moment in practices where reflex testing is not available and patients with advanced metastatic disease are seen without molecular test results by the oncologists, I believe cell-free DNA testing, commonly referred to as liquid biopsies, is uh, certainly an option for, for oncologists. It, it is not without some challenges when it comes down to the interpretation of the test results, particularly when no disease-relevant alterations are identified. So it's very important to raise awareness regarding the yield of these tests, especially in the context of patients with a minimal disease burden, such as patients with uh, only intrathoracic metastatic disease. So it's a complementary test, uh, but not a test that can completely substitute for uh, uh, tissue uh, testing. There is a study that was published by Dr. Agarwal and colleagues at UPenn Health System looking at point-of-care testing using both cell-free DNA and tissue NGS, and they found that the likelihood of having molecular test results available prior to first-line therapy was doubled by testing in this fashion and that having those tests uh, uh, results before initiation of first-line therapy was associated with superior overall survival, which reinforces what has been previously uh, discussed. Yeah, those are really, really important points. So just to, to echo, Deb, when we send a liquid biopsy, if it doesn't show anything, we keep looking, but it is a complementary test. Rami, is this something you're doing as well? Are you doing liquid tissue or both? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you for both of you of highlighting this. I am checking and I am recommending for every patient with advanced uh, non-small cell lung cancer, non-squamous to get both. I do send both tissue and um, the so-called liquid or the circulating DNA. Um, insurance companies are approving. The turnaround time, as you both mentioned, is significantly less. And also keeping in mind that there's a good number of patients that we won't know that their tissue specimen wasn't good enough until after sending with some data showing at least probably 30% of uh, uh, biopsy tissues off the bat is not good enough for testing. But sometimes we're not able to realize that it's a, a necrotic tissue, different, different things. So I'm sending both. Like you mentioned, Stephen, it is uh, very specific. Specificity of the test is very high. If it shows an actionable mutation, you act on it. 
um, the sensitivity we know based on the circulating DNA that there may not be enough there. So it's it's uh, there could be a false negative. So I would wait. But I've had many patients where you know um, I, I've sent the liquid and I got the result of the liquid while our wonderful pathologists were still you know getting the tissue ready to be sent, or while I was waiting for the MRI of the brain or the complete staging. Um, definitely, this is this is a moment to remind everyone please do not start any treatment if possible until you get the result of the NGS. Now, Matt, one of the other barriers they mentioned was standards. Um, and you know, we, you talked about the CAP is like AMP guidelines. Do you think there's enough awareness of those guidelines? Well, on the 2019 survey, we specifically ask, uh, are you aware that the CAP ISLC AMP guidelines exist? at all. And one third of respondents said no, they were not even aware that they existed. So that was concerning. And that was particularly concerning because if you think about who we distributed this survey to, it was an ISLC survey. We used ISLC channels to push this survey out. And so you would expect the awareness to be probably overrepresented here. So definitely concerning that one third had were not even aware of them, let alone what they said. And uh, when we looked at data about, we asked specific reasons they might decide to order a test or not, and that was kind of all over the board. That led us to believe that uh, the guidelines are not really being applied in a standardized way, that people are kind of testing when they think it might be uh, important for this particular patient rather than applying a uniform standard as the guidelines would suggest. So. That is uh, definitely concerning, and I think we need to to figure out a way to improve education around around the basic guidelines. And of course, we want to keep them updated and and have a place where people know I can go here and see exactly what what is recommended at the time. Yeah, I mean, these aren't going away. This is really how we're addressing lung cancer. They're critical. Deb, let's look at access as one of the barriers, particularly noting the disparities in testing. How can we level the playing field? and make sure everyone who should be tested is tested? I think it's certainly a multi-pronged approach and uh, one recipe may not be the best for everyone, but in my opinion, reflex testing is what may have the most impact. And to be able to implement it at every single practice really requires collaboration with pathology. Pathology not only can discern the challenges related to billing peculiarities, depending on where you are practicing, but also help and initiate changes in their reporting system, ordering platforms that can help and flag specimens. Um, there have been signed out as non-small cell lung cancer, so they can proceed immediately to molecular testing. Um, other very important disciplines that need to be aware of the need for biomarker testing are the biopsy teams. Your pulmonologists, your interventional radiologists, surgeons, they should be educated on the fact that very small samples may be insufficient for biomarker testing. And in many institutions also, nurse navigators play a key role in coordinating the care of patients with newly diagnosed lung cancer. And if aware and educated on this regard, they may help in checking biomarker test results, say if they already have been done, if uh, uh, if, if not, connect with pathology and, and make sure that uh, the test has been ordered and, 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 and is taking place. Medical oncologists should be aware that they have the opportunity to utilize cell-free DNA testing at point of care 
as an adjunct in cases where biomarker testing has not been performed by the time they see the patients with newly diagnosed metastatic disease in clinic. Payers certainly have a responsibility in assuring everyone is tested, not only covering testing, but also inquiring on test results prior to approval of uh, especially immunotherapy in the first-line setting for patients with non-squamous histology. In this day and age, inquiring only on EGFR and AUX status is uh, no longer ideal. And of course, patients and, and families should be made aware of the need for having biomarker test results prior to making decisions regarding treatment for this disease. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. I mean, this is critical to, to choose the right therapy. And, you know, I believe that every oncologist wants the absolute best outcome for their, their patients. I think we have to. And we know that biomarker testing is necessary for that. So if it's not being ordered properly, part of the issue has to be awareness. Rami, how do we fix this? How do we raise awareness of the importance of biomarker testing? Stephen, I'm so glad you're bringing awareness again, because it, it, it's it's really baffling when you look at all these uh, barriers. Um, to me, awareness, I mean, they're all they're all tough and challenging, but awareness being a barrier is is just to me not acceptable. And And if you think about it, it's probably one of the least expensive or less complex to fix um, because I mean how, how would you feel or I feel if 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 a if a family member of mine, a patient of mine, a friend, you know, miss out on a very important drug that could change their life and 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 effectively treat their cancer. And we just didn't know that their cancer harbored that mutation. And as we speak right now, about half of the non-squamous uh, advanced lung cancer uh, adenocarcinoma or so have, have actionable mutations. We can do a lot to raise awareness. The good news already being done. Major society, ISLAC leading the way is to raise awareness. Webinar, um, uh, education conferences, this wonderful podcast, we're raising awareness. American Society of Clinical Oncology, where their slogan is knowledge concur cancer. It is indeed, you know, you raise awareness about the importance of these biomarker and you would concur cancer. Um, uh, American Cancer uh, Society have actually launched multiple programs. I was I was uh, um, uh, humbled and honored to, to, to participate in one national program through one of the projects that we call ECHO Project, addressing these things. Because realizing over and over, there's still some patients where it's not a cost issue, it's not a quality or access. The test was just not order based on awareness. And I think we can fix this. We, we're getting close and we're doing better. Um, we need a multidisciplinary, multi-organizational collaboration effort. I'm very optimistic that there are a lot of efforts happening nationwide, worldwide. We'll get there, but let's start each and every one of us who's involved in lung cancer is to always spread the word to and educate not only providers, institution leadership, administrators, and definitely patients and caregiver um, so they know how important this is and life-changing it could be. Yeah, I think one of the big challenges is that most lung cancer care is delivered by very busy community oncologists and maybe they're not attending the, the different webinars or, or hearing these messages. So, Deb, you talked a, a bit about some strategies to raise awareness. How do you feel about patients advocating for themselves, asking about their biomarker results? 
Yes, yeah, Stephen. So it's very important. So important. Uh, we we have many ways to reach patients nowadays. Many media platforms that can be utilized for uh, uh, conveying the message, and the work also that navigators uh, perform nowadays. Many practices and institutions have navigators, and they can start and educate uh, patients and families on the importance of biomarker uh, testing right there and then. So reaching out to to nurses and even lay navigators that perform this task is also key. But I, I echo Rami's comments. I think initiatives like this one, you know, are so important to use platforms such as this podcast to, to discuss the importance and the challenges for biomarker testing on small cell lung cancer are, are, are crucial. Uh, the message really needs to reach not only oncologists, but the, the whole multidisciplinary team caring for those patients. You know, importantly, as we look to make things better, we cannot change what we do not measure. To that point, IASLC is launching another survey as part of a new partnership to address global lung cancer challenges. Matt, you're involved in that. Can you tell us about that partnership and the survey? Sure. So in 2023, ISLAC launched the ISLC Partners, and this is a mechanism for industry partners to uh, work with ISLC and support specific initiatives. There are about 10 partners right now that are at the table. And the first two projects to come out of this are going to be collaborations around improving biomarker testing. So this is really an interactive group that that gives input and leverages their expertise. And Dr. Kelly is uh, heavily involved in um, working out these projects. So the first project that we're going to take on from this group is actually to update this biomarker survey. So we know a lot has happened since 2019 uh, in terms of uh, early stage lung cancer, in terms of late stage lung cancer. There's so many more actionable mutations now that need to be tested for. So we uh, are going to take a look at this this year and we're going to apply mixed methods approach starting with focus groups and in-depth interviews of experts to try to understand where we are right now. And then we're going to conduct the survey, that which is going to launch this spring, to um, try to measure things that we measured from the last survey and see if we saw movement. So has anything changed and improved in the metastatic setting since 2019? Secondly, uh, we'd like to see what are the issues around biomarker testing for early stage lung cancer and where are what are the unique challenges there, what's sort of the state of, of things for early stage. And then finally, can we dig deeper on these barriers? Can we better understand what are the barriers to providing optimal testing and find ways to inform solutions? So we are really hoping to get robust participation uh, on the survey from from the community. And so, uh, you know, please take time to respond and give us your input on the survey. The second project from ISLC Partners will be to take a deep dive on some specific uh, sites to look at, at models of care where biomarker testing can be implemented and is done well and trying to um, put some science behind uh, how, how you could do this as an institution at that level. Matt, who should fill out the survey? Who, who's the target audience for this? Any lung cancer care provider should fill out the survey. And if you're 
uh, unsure whether you should fill it out or not, you can start it and it'll only be three or four questions if you're um, not eligible for the rest of it. And we're going to have a link to that survey in the show notes for this episode. Matt, can you read out the URL, though, to those listening? Certainly. So the URL is https colon backslash backslash bit dot ly backslash 24 dash biomarker survey. And that at the end is all one word. So you can find that link again on the show notes, the uh, ISLC website, and hopefully you'll also receive an email. There's a lot more that that we could cover, but we do have to close our time here. So I really want to thank all of you for coming. Uh, Rami, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It was great to be here. Deb, you as well. Thank you for, for being a guest in this episode, for all the work you're doing. Thank you so much, Stephen, for inviting me to be part of this important discussion. It was a pleasure. And Matt, uh, next time we'll have to have you come on and tell us what the survey showed. Um, again, we'll have links to that uh, survey in the notes. Look out for it. Go to ISLC.org to complete that. But Matt, thanks for coming on and, and uh, joining the podcast. Thanks, Stephen. Great conversation, everyone. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org, under Newsroom. If the survey is still open as you listen to this episode, please do participate. That URL, one more time, is bit.ly slash 24 dash biomarker survey, one word. We hope that you'll continue to tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 